Morning, Michael. Hey there, Carl. How are you? I'm doing good. Welcome to the podcast, A Life in Biography. Okay. I'm Michael Lackey, a scholar of the biographical novel. I thought we'd begin by just your telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the biographical novel. Okay, so um, I'm a scholar of 20th and 21st century, centuries uh, intellectual political literary history. Um, I had just uh, completed a book. This was back in, um, I think about 2011. It was my, my Modernist God State book. And I was thinking about doing a new book, which was going to be a, um, a biography of the famous African-American intellectual Jay Saunders Redding. Um, and I went to Brown University and looked through all of his papers and found some incredible things, um, amazing things. Um, in fact, I had to meet with the team of lawyers because what I found was so unbelievable that um, you know, publishing this could get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so I ended up uh, talking to the legal team and they said, look, you're still a young scholar. I wouldn't touch this. You're going to have huge legal problems uh, and in, there are going to be people coming after you. So I decided to abandon that project. But in the meantime, my wife gave me a book, uh, a Jay Perini's book, Benjamin's Crossing, which is about the famous literary theorist, um, Walter Benjamin. And I was blown away by this idea that you take somebody like Walter Benjamin, you make him into a fictional character and you do something really interesting with his life. And so I read that novel and then I ended up <clears throat> contacting Jay um, and I brought him to my campus to talk about this, this thing, the biographical novel. And he gave this amazing talk. Uh, and so that was when it really started to take off. But I think the biggest event, probably the biggest thing that happened was um, I organized a, an event with Jay Perini, Lance Olson, and Bruce Duffy. Uh, they all did biographical novels about Walter Benjamin, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Ludwig Wittgenstein. And I hosted it at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Twin Cities. And the crowd was so huge, they had to move it from the standard room into an auditorium. And I started to realize, oh my gosh, there is something here. People are genuinely interested in this literary form what is it? And, and so I started to take an interest, like what is motivating so many people to want to come and hear about biofiction and, and talk about it. And so um, that's when I started to do a lot of interviews about uh, with authors of biofiction and started to try to generate some answers. So that's, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Um, the Perini talk, um, he's a biographer as well as a novelist. That's true. Did he, did he in his talk uh, say anything about that? The fact that biography in a sense wasn't enough, that he also wanted to try this other form? He did. He said that he wanted to give us a different type of truth. And he thought that uh, biography wedded the writer to you know, facts. Um, whereas fictional truth is giving us a different kind of thing that um, is more relevant. So when, when you go to a biographical figure, um, you're getting like uh, the person himself. Uh, but when you go to uh, fiction, the, the biographical figure is not supposed to be just 
him or herself. It's actually supposed to be you as the reader too. And so he was interested in these other kinds of truths that biofiction uh, would give readers. And so he, you know, he was primarily a fiction writer. And so he wanted to deal with these uh, more fictional truths because he found them a lot more interesting. I'm going to get back to this idea of fictional truth in a minute, but um, maybe we could back up and just talk about people know, you know, there's a history of the historical novel and go back to Walter Scott and perhaps even earlier than Scott. Does the biographical novel have a similar kind of history or genealogy? Well, this is a big source of contention among scholars. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people who take my side on this, that there is a, you know, a rupture between the historical novel and the biographical novel. But there are a lot of people who think that biofiction or the biographical novel is a form of uh, the historical fiction. Now, when I first started doing this project, I, um, I thought of the biographical novel as a subgenre or a version of the historical novel. And so when I started to interview authors, uh, I would approach it in that way, but the authors were getting really frustrated with me. So for instance, <laughs> Russell Banks, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, Jay Perini, uh, Bruce Duffy, they all kept saying, look, you think we're doing history here. Anita Diamant also, she got really angry with me at a certain point in the interview. These don't come out in the interviews because we edited them and we took out some of the stuff, uh, but they were really frustrated because they kept saying, look, you're acting like I'm doing history, but I'm a fiction writer. I'm not doing history. Mm. And so they said to me, you're using an incorrect lens. And it was with the interview with um, Russell Banks that he finally got through to me and said, look, Michael, you're approaching this in an inaccurate way. So I went back and I reread Lukacs's The Historical Novel, and I started to look at it from a, with new eyes. And the new eyes were that the biographical novel is not a form of the historical novel, but it is a, uh, it's its own thing. And then I started to go back and do the history of the, the rise of the two separate forms. And that's what I've been doing for the last three or four years. Um, and even though I've done a lot of work explaining that the two forms are separate and distinct, uh, not everybody agrees with me. Uh, some agree, some don't. And so this is a source a much conversation right now uh, among scholars. Yeah, I can see that. I can see how that would be a, a, a contention, uh, especially for people who are, uh, as I am, I know uh, Lukash's book, The Historical Novel, that's had such a profound influence on the way people uh, look at fiction, particularly modern fiction. Right. Where does the biographical novel begin uh, as far as you're concerned? Well, there are two ways of answering that question. So uh, the first way is just say, okay, so our, what is our definition of biofiction? It's literature that names its protagonist after a real person. So even Walter Scott does this. Yes. Uh, uh, but uh, Lukacs makes this really smart point in um, the historical novel where he says, look, there were historical novels before Walter Scott, but Walter Scott really is the, the formulation of the most sophisticated form of the historical novel. So it comes to fruition with Walter Scott. And so I would make a similar kind of argument with biofiction. You know, Herman Melville did an extraordinary biographical novel. Um, 
but I actually think that the form comes to fruition with Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, and, and why do I pinpoint that work? And I think because Nietzsche was explaining, he theorized in the 1870s, why history as it was conceived at his time was a problem. He said at the time, most people thought of history as a science, which clarifies how we come into being, what, how history shapes and determines who, the, who and what the humans are, and that literature is supposed to do that, which is very much a Lukacian approach to the historical novel. Nietzsche said, look, we need a form of fiction that is going to emphasize how the human can shape and determine history. And thus spoke Zarathustra is that work. And so in many ways, Nietzsche was both a theorist and a practitioner of the form, and he explained it, he justified it. And so in many ways, I think thus spoke Zarathustra becomes like the model that we're going to see enacted in a lot of other uh, biofictions after the 19th century. Uh, and it's going to be gaining momentum all the way up until the 1930s. It has an explosion in the 30s. That explosion ends you know, not totally, but quite a bit by the end of the 30s. Uh, and then it uh, comes back in the 90s. And then ever since the 90s, it's become one of the most dominant literary forms. Nietzsche's uh, really had a powerful literary influence, quite, quite aside from his reputation and philosophy. I mean, he's influenced so many writers from, you know, as different as Eugene O'Neill, say, and Sylvia Plath. She considered Nietzsche one of her, you know, most important writers and influences. Uh, so I, I can I can see him as um, uh, giving us kind of the roots or the origins of of the way the biographical novels practiced. You mentioned Melville. Uh, I love his novel Israel Potter. Right. And it is a novel, but it is based on a historical figure, and Potter himself uh, had an autobi autobiography. What strikes me about Israel Potter is the way that uh, Melville treats figures like John Paul Jones and Benjamin Franklin, which are just hilarious send-ups of these two revered American historical figures. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's using, I, I would call it a biographical novel. And I think, unless you can correct me, since you're the scholar of the form, but Melville seems to be the first American writer of that stature of that quality, of that rank, to do something that we might call a biographical novel. Yeah, I totally agree. And, yeah. and what's interesting is he starts off that work, you know, thinking of it primarily as a biography, but then he starts shifting more and more to fiction. Um, and, you know, I mean, he was such an extraordinary fiction writer, so he was able to see how he could convert that life into a symbol, you know, that was going to reflect certain things about America, the nation. And um, that's where the, the, the novel becomes so extraordinary to my mind. Yes, I, I think so. I think it, uh, uh, although it, certainly the novel is known, I, I don't think its greatness, as far as I'm concerned, has been fully recognized. If you take Franklin, for example, the way he treats uh, Franklin's mentality uh, Franklin's psychology, the fact that Franklin was a businessman uh, and there was a certain kind of duplicity <laughs> in the way that Franklin did business that I think Melville absolutely nails. I mean, those scenes are invented. They're coming out of Melville's imagination. And yet for me, as a, a biographer, a historian, I'm, I'm 
it's reinforcing certain things I know uh, that I've read about uh, Franklin, but, but in a way that no biographer, certainly or historian, would dare to put on the page in precisely that way. Yes, I totally agree. And, you know, I, I just did a, an interview with uh, Claudia Rankin, who, who did this amazing book called um, Citizen. And in the book, there are real people, one of them being Serena Williams. And what she says is, look, when I write about real people, I'm not really, here. here's the quote she says, I don't feel as if I'm talking about them as real people. I'm talking about individuals inside dynamics. And what you're saying is like, we don't get the real Ben Franklin here, but we get a certain dynamic about Franklin that rings true to us, that makes sense. And that duplicity you talk about is something that, uh, it's a fictional truth, um, but it actually is directly relevant to, to Franklin because if you read Franklin's uh, autobiography, that really characterizes the man in some ways, that duplicity, which is there in a lot of his work, but it's a different kind of truth that the author of fiction gives us than the author of biography gives us. Yeah, that's that's very much true. Um, I want to sort of flash forward into the 20th century. Um, there were certainly biographical novels uh, between Israel Potter and, say, The Confessions of Nat Turner. Uh, but I can't think of a uh, writer of William Styron's stature, you know, someone like Faulkner or Hemingway or Fitzgerald uh, Steinbeck uh, doing um, the kind of biographical novel that William Styron does. And I think there is, in my conception of modernism, a kind of bias against the biographical novel, which uh, William Styron breaks down. Um, you know, Faulkner read, for example, um, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men. And he wrote Warren a letter about it. And he said, uh, you know, the best part of this is the cast master story because it's wholly invented. And Faulkner's idea of the modernist novel was that you were like God, you created these characters. And the last thing you wanted, the last thing you wanted would be somebody to say, oh, you know, I've read about so-and-so, that's not my conception of so-and-so. You can't say that about Quentin Compson or Flem Snopes or Faulkner's other characters. He may have drawn some of them from people he knew from his own life, but they're not historical figures. And I know in a recent article of yours that, that I read and that I wrote to you about, you, you, you talk about the Confessions of Nat Turner is a really pivotal work. I wonder if you could say something about that. Okay. Um, well, you know, I just want to back up just a little bit sure. to give you some some other novels from the early 20th century that turned out yeah. to be really important. So Leon Feuchtwanger did in, in, um, in 1925 a novel called uh, Yud Seuss. And by the late 80s, it had sold over 3 million copies. Mm. And Leon Feuchtwanger, we don't talk about him much today, but he was a big hitter in the early 20th century. A German writer came to the United States, uh, but Jude Seuss was an enormously popular one. Uh, and Lukacs talks about that novel a lot in the historical novel. Uh, he's very critical of it because it's a biographical novel and Lukacs thinks that biographical novels are doomed uh, aesthetically. Um, 
1916, George Moore, the famous Irish writer, who was also super popular in the early 20th century, he did one called The Brook Carrot, which is about Jesus. D.H. Lawrence uh, loved The Brook Carrot, and he wrote his own version. D.H. Lawrence wrote The Escaped Cock, which is also about Jesus. So it was happening. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it came to an end, and I just finished an article about this uh, around 1940, uh, or I don't know if I'd say an end, but it, there was a turn, a pause with the biographical novel. And the reason I believe, uh, not just because of uh, Lukács' um, The Historical Novel, I have said this in print that I think that's one of the reasons, the primary reason, I, I think I'm changing my mind about that now, um, what happened is in 1940, Joseph Goebbels took Feuchtwanger's novel and made it into a movie. And he did the exact opposite of what Feuchtwanger did in his novel. The novel, the, the biofiction has this enormous power on audiences because this is a real person. So this story is not made up. Uh, it's kind of like a warning to the culture or a model to the culture of this, what could happen because I'm basing the story on a real life. Goebbels realized the power of that form and he used it and he turned, he wrote, he uh, made sure that the probably the most anti-Semitic film ever done came into being. And I think what Goebbels did spooked a lot of biofiction writers. Mm. So that's my, one, my new theory that I'm starting to develop about why the form started to uh, trail off after 1939, 1940 why so many authors stopped doing it. Um, but yes, um, Styron's 1967 novel was hugely important. Um, and it was important for so many reasons. One, it was a complete scam. I mean, the novel's brilliant and that's why it won the Pulitzer. Uh, and it was uh, an extraordinary work. Uh, and I think people realized it could be a wonderful film and so he got a film contract, but then when the 10 black writers uh, came out and they basically blasted the film, blasted the novel uh, because they thought it was uh, racially insensitive and inaccurate, um, that really ended up dooming the, the film project. Uh, but what I have been able to show over the last couple of years, few years in my articles, is that if you look at the blacks that were responding to Styron they were all black separatists. And so the black separatists uh, really didn't, they, they were fighting against black integrationism. And so they, they hated people like uh, Jay Saunders Red. I wouldn't say hate, but they really had strong objections to people like Jay Saunders Redding, uh, John Hope Franklin, St. Clair Drake. Uh, and so there was this infighting going on in the black community but the black integrationists love the novel. And the reason why they loved it is because the novel is an integrationist novel. It's making the case for integrationism, but also pointing out some of the real serious dangers of the separatist psychology and ideology. And so uh, Styron's novel was really trying to show why black separatists, but not just black separatists, white separatists, all forms of separatists were doing substantial damage to the culture. So the novel, seemingly about 1831, the Nat Turner Rebellion is really about 1967 and about the infighting of black separatism, black integrationism, white separatism, white integrationism. And so it's really about these more complex issues 
from the time period. Uh, and it had a huge power. Uh, and people recognized that, why it, which is why it you know, caused such controversy. Yes, it certainly did. I, I remember uh, Styron talking and writing about the novel and his reading, you know, there was a document, The Confessions of Nat Turner, an interview with Nat Turner after the slave revolt. And Styron looks at that. And of course, there are all kinds of gaps and things you would want to have asked Nat Turner and thinking about, you know, the, uh, the trajectory of his revolt. And that's when I think that really galvanized Styron's imagination to, to treat uh, Nat Turner not as a religious fanatic or even not even simply as someone who has slave revolt, but as this very complex man with a very powerful imagination, um, certainly, certainly religion is part of it, but it encompasses so much more than that, uh, that Nat Turner becomes a, a threat uh, to the status quo, to slavery, uh, in in quite a different way uh, from when you when you look at other um, uh, 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 novels, say the novel by uh, Arna Bontemps, uh, Black Thunder. Uh, I remember when I was an undergraduate at Michigan State University, my senior thesis was about the Confessions of Nat Turner, and I read Bontemps, Black Thunder, and I even remember. Bontemps at one point saying, well, I, no, I couldn't do Nat Turner because, you know, his religious fanaticism really turned me off. But Styron saw so much more in the implications of that revolt and in that human being. And, you know, what, what, what Styron does so well, I think, in that novel is he takes a look at the structures of oppression that are going to force not into a certain kind of fanaticism and religious fanaticism is part of it but it's much bigger than that it's a a kind of a racial fanaticism so the the whole novel is building up to this fact that that his his nat turner starts to see all white people as evil and he won't work with white people and where is styron getting this idea well i have tried to show and i think i have effectively done so is that Styron used Malcolm X's autobiography in part to explain what is happening to his Nat Turner and that Malcolm X had the same moment where a white woman comes up to him and says, you know, I want to help the cause. And he says, and he, he turns her down and says, there's nothing you can do just, you know, and it's, he's really rude to him, to this woman. But Malcolm X comes back later when he finally starts to get away from his kind of uh, almost fanatical separatist ideology. And he says, I wish I can find that woman and apologize to her and tell her she can contribute. And I try to show that that same kind of dynamic happens in Styron's novel, novel and that he's modeling this on Malcolm X, who underwent a transformation, who, who because of oppression, turns to this kind of uh, nasty form of separatism and starts demonizing all white people as evil. But then he, when, when, Malcolm X goes to Mecca and meets some white people who are actually really supportive of his project, um, he changes his view. And Nat Turner, Styron's Nat Turner undergoes the same experience. And so Styron is taking a look at the conditions of oppression directed at black people in particular, and how it's forcing them potentially to, to turn to these unhealthy uh, forms of thinking, specifically separatism. And so he uh, shows how his Nat Turner finally regrets that and comes back and says, look, 
separatism is not the way. Demonizing all white people is not the way. Uh, we've got to find ways to work together to construct a healthier, more socially just body politic. I wish James Baldwin was, was around for you to interview <laughs> since he lived with Styron for part of the writing of the Confessions of Nat Turner. It seems to me, I know you feel this too, that he had an impact on the novel too. And that's, I, I totally, you know, this is the thing that has stunned me the most. I mean, nobody's been able to explain why there are all these references to homosexuality in the novel. And the, the five of the 10 black writers just blasted Styron for making uh, his, his Nat Turner have this gay experience. But Styron was pro-gay. I mean, he talks about this in, in, a, in a, I can't remember, I think it's Family Values essay, where he, you know, he doesn't think that being gay is abnormal or unnatural. And where did he get this from? Well, part of it, I think Styron was living with Baldwin. Baldwin writes in 1956, an overtly gay novel. Uh, Styron, uh, Baldwin admits that part of him is in uh, Styron's Nat Turner. And so where does the gay stuff come from in the novel? And I think Styron realizes that the separatism, the black-white separatism, also applies to gay straight separatism. And Styron thinks this, this distinction is arbitrary. It, it's yeah. nonsense. And so yeah. Styron was, you know, trying to show like, look, uh, would Baldwin, uh, the, the, the structures and conditions against blacks that in, in 1831 uh, are based on the separatist ideology, but it's also happening in 1967 to both blacks and gays and lesbians and, and and he's trying to say this is all nonsense. And so he's using the Nat Turner character to try to show that we could develop a healthier way of thinking that is more integrationist in nature. Yes, um, that argument uh, that was made when the novel came out by the 10 black writers, at least some of them who pointed to the homosexuality is some, you know, as a way of sort of demeaning Nat Turner. Boy, that argument doesn't look so good now. That's right. And you have so many other black writers, Jay Saunders writing, Ralph Ellison, um, who are and James Baldwin, who are making the case for the gay community. Right. Richard Wright does this even in one of I think it's The Long Way Home, where he he shows the problem of treating gay people in this really horrible way. And this is why I think all these black integrationist writers were supportive of Styron in his novel. The biographical novel, like the historical novel, you know, is very much, as you're showing, I think, uh, is going to bring with it the sense of our own times. Uh, so one of the things the biographical novel does, I think the historical novel does too, is it, it is a reinterpretation of the past. Bio biographies can do this as well, uh, but uh, a novelist has such freedom uh, to work with what is there, with what is the record, and, and, and to go beyond it. And I think that's what disturbs some people. You know, they'll read, uh, they'll watch a docudrama, or they'll read a biographical novel, or they'll read a historical novel, and if they're not well-versed in the period, they might say, well, I, this makes me uneasy, this troubles me, because I don't know what's true and what isn't. What would you say to them? You got to start off by realizing it's fiction. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and you know that it's not history, it's not biography, it's fiction. And so the, um, and, and what I've noticed, you know, like you started the question by talking about the reinterpretation of the past, but most of my interactions with um, 
biographical novelists have focused less on reinterpreting the past than using the past. Mm. And so, um, you know, Susan Sellers did this one about Virginia Woolf and her sister, Vanessa Bell. And she said, look, my, my novel is more metaphor than fact. It's more my vision than a reality of the past. So they're not so much trying to give us a reinterpretation of the past as they're using the past to help us understand certain kinds of human structures in the present. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. And so, so, and you know, one of the methods, you know, it was so interesting because it was a common method for so many of these authors who would say, look, I would live in the work for two, three years, just live in it. And then finally I put it away. And I stopped reading about the person because now I wanted my vision to take over. And so um, are, am I giving you facts? And these writers say, no, I, I'm taking the story because it resonates. And now I'm fictionalizing, fictionalizing it so that I can help make sense of life in the here and now and for the future. Um, and so they, they very consciously and strategically put the materials aside uh, so that their vision could take over. You know, one of the things that strikes me about your, your work uh, is your interviewing of these writers. Um, it's not a typical academic thing to do, um, especially when you're studying a genre. I can't think of many scholars. Maybe there are now, and maybe I'm just showing my age. But certainly in, in, in my, my career, what I was doing as a biographer within a, academic life was with very rare exceptions, not what scholars did. Uh, they wanted to confine themselves to the page, to the text. You know, um, let me tell you how that happened. Uh, when, when I, there was not much biofiction criticism when I first started. I mean, there's some, but it wasn't like it is now that it's just exploding everywhere. But um, the little criticism that I had read I was reading this stuff and I was saying, you know, this seems to me wrong. This doesn't seem like what these writers are trying to do. And so these, these writers are saying, this is what the writer is doing. And I kept thinking, I don't know, it doesn't strike me that this is what the writer is doing. So I had, when, when I got this idea of starting to interview the authors, part of it was to counter what all these scholars were saying. And lo and behold, most of the scholars would just say, hey, look, the, what they're saying I'm doing is not at all what I'm doing. And in fact, um, David Ebershop, who did the one about the Danish girl, he was so frustrated. Um, he, I don't think this came out in the interview. This was more what he was telling me privately. Um, but he said, you know, a lot of these writers are, uh, a lot of these scholars and historians are really criticizing me for doing things that I didn't even want to do. Like, they, they, you know, he says, I wasn't trying to do that. So for instance, Einar Vayner, the real person was married to uh, a Danish woman. And, but David made the wife an American woman and they were criticizing him because he got all the facts wrong. When he says, I didn't get the facts wrong. I know what the facts were. I just changed this because I was trying to do something totally different. Um, and so people make it seem like they were ignorant of the history or um, that they didn't understand the period. And most of the time, these people knew exactly what they were doing. They just did it for a reason, for a purpose. And, and getting the writers on record really helped me clarify that some of the critiques of biofiction were misguided and misinformed. 
Yeah, I think it makes the writing come alive when you do that kind of interviewing. Your experience reminds me of my own start as a biographer when I was, uh, I had a contract to write a, basically an academic work about Marilyn Monroe to write a biographical essay and then to write about, you know, the other literature about her. And as I began to do that, I spent a summer reading the, the uh, early books on Marilyn Monroe and I kept thinking, there's something wrong here. There's, there's, they don't seem to understand. My background was in acting. They don't seem to understand uh, why she does certain things, and it has to do with her conception of acting. Uh, and that's when I began to contact people who worked with her, uh, and it it just sort of revolutionized things, and and I think has had a big impact in the way Monroe uh, biography is treated now. Uh, very different from just the sort of passive notion of her as a victim. Uh, but that's part of what I'm getting at is what, what I find remarkable and I think uh, really significant about your work on the biographical novel is dealing with those who create the work. And it's humbling too, because, you know, I've had to change my views quite a bit because I came in to those interviews sometimes with really faulty frameworks, which irritated a number of the, the authors. And um, I think that one of, the, one of the things that has been really useful for me is to learn how to uh, acknowledge that I'm making errors mm. and listen to the authors so that I can get a better grasp. And I think sometimes scholars, you know, locked in our little offices um, doing all of our thinking can sometimes get wrapped up in our own notions and fail to see what these other people that they have a voice in this i mean they're the writers they're the ones who came up with the work and i think we sh we should be listening to them uh, and help you know it helps modify our our own interpretations so are you ever going to go back to saunders reading um do you know, from what I understand, I still have to wait for about five or six people to die ah. before that book can be published because some of the stuff that is in there is really pertinent to uh, really major players in the field today. Yeah. Uh, and if any of this got out, it could be um, really quite scandalous. And so I have to, um, I have. I, I, I don't foresee myself going back to it. He Somebody needs to write that biography. He's such an extraordinary man. Yes. Um, yeah. It reminds me of, of uh, Agnes DeMille, who waited decades and decades to write a biography of Martha Graham. Hmm. And I, I was interviewing DeMille for one of my biographies. Uh, and she, she, she said, you know, I had to wait till Martha Graham died. There was just, you know, she knew Martha Graham very well, but she wouldn't have dared to publish the book, uh, you know, while, while Graham was alive. Right. Yeah. So who knows? You may come back to this material uh, at some point. Uh, I, I'm sure you won't forsake the biographical novel, but uh, given my own interest in this, I hope someday you do attempt a biography. Yeah, that would be fun. It would be fun. Yeah. So what have I left out here, Michael? Is there anything else you, you want us to know about the biographical novel or something I should have asked you? You know, it's really taking off, uh, you know, the study of it. What, you know, you ask if I'm going to come back to the Jason Redding material. Yeah. And when I, um, when I first started working on this, I, um, a scholar by the name of Julia Novak 
brought me to London to be a part of a roundtable forum. And the scholar Lucia Boldrini was a part of this event. And afterwards we went out, it was on Brexit night, the very night that Brexit happened. We're out at a, at a pub afterwards. And I said something to the effect, you know, like there's probably three, four, five more years of work ahead of us. And Lucia turned to me and said, uh, three or four or five years, she said, there are decades of work ahead of us. <laughs> and I, how did I miss that? But she totally nailed it. I mean, she, she saw something that I didn't quite see at that time. Um, but now that I've been working on it for almost 10 years, um, I don't see any end of it. Like I, the questions I have, the things I want to do, um, it's going to take me decades, I think. I can't imagine turning to anything else right now because uh, all the projects I have are going to take me literally years to do. And I'm working on the new project is on um, uh, German biofiction. I just finished my Irish uh, biofiction project, which will be coming out in Decem December. Um, but now I've been working for the last year on the German biofiction project, which has been super exciting. Well, I look forward to that. And it certainly leaves our listeners with things to anticipate and to look for. And so they should stay tuned. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Hey, thank you so much, Kyle. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime. Sounds great. Good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Morning, Michael. Hey there, Kyle. How are you? I'm doing good. Welcome to the podcast, A Life in Biography. Okay. I'm Michael Lackey, a scholar of the biographical novel. I thought we'd begin by just your telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the biographical novel. Okay, so um, I'm a scholar of 20th and 21st century, centuries uh, intellectual political literary history. Um, I had just uh, completed a book. This was back in, um, I think about 2011. It was my, my Modernist God State book. And I was thinking about doing a new book, which was going to be a, um, a biography of the famous African-American intellectual Jay Saunders Redding. Um, and I went to Brown University and looked through all of his papers and found some incredible things, um, amazing things. Um, in fact, I had to meet with the team of lawyers because what I found was so unbelievable that um, you know, publishing this could get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so I ended up uh, talking to the legal team and they said, look, you're still a young scholar. I wouldn't touch this. You're going to have huge legal problems uh, and in there are going to be people coming after you. So I decided to abandon that project. But in the meantime, my wife gave me a book, uh, a Jay Perini's book, Benjamin's Crossing, which is about the famous literary theorist, um, Walter Benjamin. And I was blown away by this idea that you take somebody like Walter Benjamin, you make him into a fictional character and you do something really interesting with his life. And so I read that novel and then I ended up <clears throat> contacting Jay um, and I brought him to my campus to talk about this, this thing, the biographical novel, and he gave this amazing talk. Uh, and so that was when it really started to take off. But I think the biggest event, probably the biggest thing that happened 
was um, I organized a, an event with Jay Perini, Lance Olson, and Bruce Duffy. Uh, they all did biographical novels about Walter Benjamin, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Ludwig Wittgenstein. And I hosted it at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Twin Cities. And the crowd was so huge, they had to move it from the standard room into an auditorium. And I started to realize, oh my gosh, there is something here. People are genuinely interested in this literary form. What is it? And, and so I started to take an interest, like what is motivating so many people to want to come and hear about biofiction and, and talk about it. And so um, that's when I started to do a lot of interviews about uh, with authors of biofiction and started to try to generate some answers. So that, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, that's a, that's very interesting. Um, the Perini talk, um, he's a biographer as well as a novelist. That's true. Did he, yeah. did he in his talk uh, say anything about that? The fact that biography in a sense wasn't enough, that he also wanted to try this other form? He did. He said that he wanted to give us a different type of truth. And he thought that uh, biography wedded the writer to, you know, facts. Um, whereas fictional truth is giving us a different kind of thing that um, is more relevant. So when, when you go to a biographical figure, um, you're getting like uh, the person himself. Uh, but when you go to uh, fiction, the, the biographical figure is not supposed to be just him or herself. It's actually supposed to be you as the reader too. And so he was interested in these other kinds of truths that biofiction uh, would give readers. And so he, you know, he was primarily a fiction writer. And so he wanted to deal with these uh, more fictional truths because he found them a lot more interesting. I'm going to get back to this idea of fictional truth in a minute, but um, maybe we could back up and just talk about people know, you know, there's a history of the historical novel and go back to Walter Scott and perhaps even earlier than Scott. Does the biographical novel have a similar kind of history or genealogy? Well, this is a big source of contention among scholars. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people who take my side on this, that there is a, you know, a rupture between the historical novel and the biographical novel. But there are a lot of people who think that biofiction or the biographical novel is a form of uh, the historical fiction. Now, when I first started doing this project, I, um, I thought of the biographical novel as a subgenre or a version of the historical novel. And so when I started to interview authors, uh, I would approach it in that way, but the authors were getting really frustrated with me. So for instance, <laughs> Russell Banks, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, Jay Perini, uh, Bruce Duffy, they all kept saying, look, you think we're doing history here. Anita Diamant also, she got really angry with me at a certain point in the interview. These don't come out in the interviews because we edited them and we took out some of the stuff. Uh, but they were really frustrated because they kept saying, look, you're acting like I'm doing history, but I'm a fiction writer. I'm not doing history. Mm. And so they said to me, you're using an incorrect lens. And it was with the interview with... Um, Russell Banks, that he finally got through to me and said, look, Michael, you're approaching this in an inaccurate way. So I went back and I reread Lukacs's The Historical Novel, and I started to look at it from a, with new eyes. And the new eyes were 
that the biographical novel is not a form of the historical novel, but it is a, uh, it's its own thing. And then I started to go back and do the history of the, the rise of the two separate forms. And that's what I've been doing for the last three or four years. Um, and even though I've done a lot of work explaining that the two forms are separate and distinct, uh, not everybody agrees with me. Uh, some agree, some don't. And so this is a source of much conversation right now uh, among scholars. Yeah, I can see that. I can see how that would be a, a, a contention, uh, especially for people who are, uh, as I am, I know uh, Lukash's book, The Historical Novel, that's had such a profound influence on the way people uh, look at fiction, particularly modern fiction. Right. Where does the biographical novel begin uh, as far as you're concerned? Well, there are two ways of answering that question. So uh, the first way is just say, okay, so our, what is our definition of biofiction? It's literature that names its protagonist after a real person. So even Walter Scott does this. Yes. Uh, uh, but uh, Lukács makes this really smart point in um, the historical novel where he says, look, there were historical novels before Walter Scott, but Walter Scott really is the, the formulation of the most sophisticated form of the historical novel. So it comes to fruition with Walter Scott. And so I would make a similar kind of argument with biofiction. You know, Herman Melville did an extraordinary biographical novel. Um, but I actually think that the form comes to fruition with Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, and, and why do I pinpoint that work. And I think because Nietzsche was explaining, he theorized in the 1870s, why history as it was conceived at his time was a problem. He said at the time, most people thought of history as a science, which clarifies how we come into being, how history shapes and determines who, the, who and what the humans are, and that literature is supposed to do that which is very much a Lukacian approach to the historical novel. Nietzsche said, look, we need a form of fiction that is going to emphasize how the human can shape and determine history. And thus spoke Zarathustra is that work. And so in many ways, Nietzsche was both a theorist and a practitioner of the form and he explained it, he justified it. And so in many ways, I think thus spoke Zarathustra becomes like the model that we're going to see enacted in a lot of other uh, biofictions after the 19th century. Uh, and it's going to be gaining momentum all the way up until the 1930s. It has an explosion in the 30s. That explosion ends, you know, not totally, but quite a bit by the end of the 30s. Uh, and then it uh, comes back in the 90s. And then ever since the 90s, it's become one of the most dominant literary forms. Nietzsche's uh, really had a powerful literary influence, quite, quite aside from his reputation and philosophy. I mean, He's influenced so many writers from, you know, as different as Eugene O'Neill, say, and Sylvia Plath. She considered Nietzsche one of her, you know, most important writers and influences. Uh, so I, I can I can see him as um, uh, giving us kind of the roots or the origins of, of the way the biographical novels practiced. You mentioned Melville. Uh, I love his novel, Israel Potter. Right. And it is a novel, but it is based on a historical figure. And Potter himself uh, had an autobi autobiography. 
What strikes me about Israel Potter is the way that uh, Melville treats figures like John Paul Jones and Benjamin Franklin, which are just hilarious send-ups of these two revered American historical figures. Uh, but he's using, I, I would call it a biographical novel. And I think, unless you can correct me, since you're the scholar of the form, but Melville seems to be the first American writer of that stature, of that quality, of that rank, to do something that we might call a biographical novel. Yeah, I totally agree. And, yeah. and what's interesting is he starts off that work, you know, thinking of it primarily as a biography, but then he starts shifting more and more to fiction. Um, and, you know, I mean, he was such an extraordinary fiction writer, so he was able to see how he could convert that life into a symbol, you know, that was going to reflect certain things about America, the nation. And um, that's where the, the, the novel becomes so extraordinary to my mind. Yes, I, I think so. I think it, uh, uh, although it, certainly the novel is known, I, I don't think its greatness, as far as I'm concerned, has been fully recognized. If you take Franklin, for example, the way he treats uh, Franklin's mentality, uh, Franklin's psychology, the fact that Franklin was a businessman uh, and there was a certain kind of duplicity <laughs> in the way that Franklin did business that I think Melville absolutely nails. I mean, those scenes are invented they're coming out of Melville's imagination. And yet for me, as a, a biographer, a historian, I'm, I'm, it's reinforcing certain things I know uh, that I've read about uh, Franklin, but, but in a way that no biographer, certainly, or historian, would dare to put on the page in precisely that way. Yes, I totally agree. And, you know, I, I just did a, an interview with uh, Claudia Rankin, who, who did this amazing book called um, Citizen. And in the book, there are real people, one of them being Serena Williams. And what she says is, look, when I write about real people, I'm not really, here. here's the quote she says, I don't feel as if I'm talking about them as real people. I'm talking about individuals inside dynamics. And what you're saying is like, we don't get, the real Ben Franklin here, but we get a certain dynamic about Franklin that rings true to us, that makes sense. And that duplicity you talk about is something that, uh, it's a fictional truth, um, but it actually is directly relevant to, to Franklin because if you read Franklin's uh, autobiography, that really characterizes the man in some ways, that duplicity, which is there in a lot of his work, but it's a different kind of truth that the author of fiction gives us than the author of biography gives us. Yeah, that's, that's very much true. Um, I wanna sort of flash forward into the 20th century. Um, there were certainly biographical novels uh, between Israel Potter and say the Confessions of Nat Turner. Uh, but I can't think of a uh, writer of William Styron's stature you know, someone like Faulkner or Hemingway or Fitzgerald, uh, Steinbeck, uh, doing um, the kind of biographical novel that William Styron does. And I think there is, in my conception of modernism, a kind of bias against the biographical novel, which uh, William Styron breaks down. Um, 
you know, Faulkner read, for example, um, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men. He wrote Warren a letter about it. And he said, uh, you know, the best part of this is the cast master story because it's wholly invented. And Faulkner's idea of the modernist novel was that you were like God. You created these characters. And the last thing you wanted, the last thing you wanted would be somebody to say, oh, you know, I've read about so-and-so. That's not my conception of so-and-so. You can't say that about Quentin Thompson or Flem Snopes or Faulkner's other characters. He may have drawn some of them from people he knew from his own life, but they're not historical figures. And I know in a recent article of yours that, that I read and that I wrote to you about, you, you, you talk about the Confessions of Nat Turner is a really pivotal work. I wonder if you could say something about that. Okay. Um... Well, you know, I just want to back up just a little bit sure. to give you some some other novels from the early 20th century that turned out yeah. to be really important. So Leon Feuchtwanger did in in um, in 1925 a novel called uh, Jude Seuss, and by the late 80s it had sold over three million copies. Mm. And Leon Feuchtwanger, we don't talk about him much today, but he was a big hitter in the early 20th century. A German writer came to the United States. Uh, but Jude Seuss was an enormously popular one. Uh, and Lukács talks about that novel a lot in the historical novel. Uh, he's very critical of it because it's a biographical novel and Lukács thinks that biographical novels are doomed uh, aesthetically. Um, in 1916, George Moore, the famous Irish writer who was also super popular in the early 20th century, he did one called The Brook Carrot, which is about Jesus. D.H. Lawrence, uh, loved the Brook Carrot, and he wrote his own version. D.H. Lawrence wrote The Escaped Cock, which is also about Jesus. So it was happening. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it came to an end, and I just finished an article about this uh, around 1940, uh, or I don't know if I'd say an end, but it there was a turn, a pause with the biographical novel. And the reason, I believe, uh, not just because of uh, Lukács's um, the historical novel, I have said this in print that I think that's one of the reasons, the primary reason, I, I think I'm changing my mind about that now. Um, what happened is in 1940, Joseph Goebbels took Feuchtwanger's novel and made it into a movie. And he did the exact opposite of what Feuchtwanger wanted, did in his novel. The novel, the, the biofiction has this enormous power on audiences because this is a real person. So this story is not made up. Uh, it's kind of like a warning to the culture or a model to the culture of this, what could happen, because I'm basing the story on a real life. Goebbels realized the power of that form, and he used it, and he turned, he wrote, he uh, made sure that the probably the most anti-Semitic film ever done came into being, and I think what Goebbels did spooked a lot of biofiction writers. So that's my one, my new theory that I'm starting to develop about why the form started to uh, trail off after 1939-1940, why so many authors stopped doing it. Um, but yes, um, Styron's 1967 novel was hugely important. Um, and it was important for so many reasons. One, it was a complete scam. I mean, the novel's brilliant and that's why it won the Pulitzer. Uh, and it was uh, an extraordinary work. Uh, and I think people realized it could be a wonderful film. 
And so he got a film contract. But then when the 10 Black writers uh, came out and they basically blasted the film, blasted the novel, uh, because they thought it was uh, racially insensitive and inaccurate, um, that really ended up dooming the, the film project. Uh, but what I have been able to show over the last couple of years, few years in my articles, is that if you look at the Blacks that were responding to Styron, they were all Black separatists. And so the Black separatists uh, really didn't, they, they were fighting against Black integrationism. And so they, they hated people like uh, Jay Saunders Redding. I wouldn't say hate, but they really had strong objections to people like Jay Saunders Redding, uh, John Hope Franklin, St. Clair Drake. Uh, and so there was this infighting going on in the Black community, but the Black integrationists loved the novel. And the reason why they loved it is because the novel is an integrationist novel. It's making the case for integrationism, but also pointing out some of the real serious dangers of the separatist psychology and ideology. And so uh, Styron's novel was really trying to show why Black separatists, but not just Black separatists, white separatists, all forms of separatists were doing substantial damage to the culture. So the novel, seemingly about 1831, the Nat Turner Rebellion, is really about 1967 and about the infighting of Black separatism Black integrationism, white separatism, white integrationism. And so it's really about these more complex issues from the time period. Uh, and it had a huge power. Uh, and people recognized that, why it, which is why it you know, caused such controversy. Yes, it certainly did. I, I remember uh, Styron talking and writing about the novel and his reading. You know, there was a document, The Confessions of Nat Turner, an interview with Nat Turner after the slave revolt. And, Starman looks at that, and of course, there are all kinds of gaps and things you would want to have asked Nat Turner and thinking about, you know, the, the, the trajectory of his revolt. And that's when I, I think that really galvanized Styron's imagination to, to treat uh, Nat Turner not as a religious fanatic or even not even simply as someone who had a slave revolt, but as this very complex man with a very powerful imagination, um, certainly certainly religion is part of it, but it encompasses so much more than that, uh, that Ned Turner becomes a, a threat uh, to the status quo, to slavery uh, in, in quite a different way uh, from when you, when you look at other um, uh, uh, novels, say the novel by uh, Arna Bontem, uh, Black Thunder, uh, I remember when I was an undergraduate at Michigan State University, my senior thesis was about the confessions of Nat Turner. And I read Bon Tom's Black Thunder, and I even remember Bon Tom at one point saying, well, I, no, I couldn't do Nat Turner because, you know, his religious fanaticism really turned me off. But Styron saw so much more in the implications of that revolt and in that human being. And, you know, what, what, what Styron does so well, I think, in that novel is he takes a look at the structures of oppression that are going to force Nat into a certain kind of fanaticism. And religious fanaticism is part of it, but it's much bigger than that. It's a, a kind of a racial fanaticism. So the, the whole novel is building up to this fact that, that his, his Nat Turner starts to 
see all white people as evil and he won't work with white people. And where is Styron getting this idea? Well, I have tried to show, and I think I have effectively done so, is that Styron used Malcolm X's autobiography in part to explain what is happening to his Nat Turner and that Malcolm X had the same moment where a white woman comes up to him and says, you know, I want to help the cause. And he says, and he, he turns her down and says, there's nothing you can do. Just, you know, and it's, he's really rude to him, to this woman. But Malcolm X comes back later when he finally starts to get away from his kind of uh, almost fanatical separatist ideology. And he says, I wish I can find that woman and apologize to her and tell her she can contribute. And I try to show that that same kind of dynamic happens in Styron's novel and that he's modeling this on Malcolm X, who underwent a transformation, who, who because of oppression, turns to this kind of uh, nasty form of separatism and starts demonizing all white people as evil. But then he, when, when Malcolm X goes to Mecca and meets some white people who are actually really supportive of his project, um, he changes his view. And Nat Turner's, Styron's Nat Turner undergoes the same experience. And so Styron is taking a look at the conditions of oppression directed at Black people in particular and how it's forcing them potentially to, to turn to these unhealthy uh, forms of thinking, specifically separatism. And so he uh, shows how his Nat Turner finally regrets that and comes back and says, look, uh, separatism is not the way. Demonizing all white people is not the way. Uh, we've got to find ways to work together to construct a healthier and more socially just body politic. I wish James Baldwin was, was around for you to interview <laughs> since he lived with Styron for part of the writing of The Confessions of Nat Turner. It seems to me, I know you feel this too, that he had an impact on the novel too. And that's, I, I totally, you know, this is the thing that has stunned me the most. I mean, nobody's been able to explain why there are all these references to homosexuality in the novel. And the, the five of the 10 black writers just blasted Styron for making uh, his, his Nat Turner have this gay experience, but Styron was pro-gay. I mean, he talks about this in, in, a, in a, I can't remember, I think it's family values essay, where he, you know, he doesn't think that being gay is abnormal or unnatural. And where did he get this from? Well, part of it, I think Styron was living with Baldwin. Baldwin writes in 1956, an overtly gay novel. Uh, uh, Baldwin admits that part of him is in uh, Styron's Nat Turner. And so where does the gay stuff come from in the novel? And I think Styron realizes that the separatism, the black-white separatism also applies to gay straight separatism. And Styron thinks this, this distinction is arbitrary. It, it's yeah. nonsense. And so Byron yeah. was, you know, trying to show like, look, uh, would Baldwin, uh, the, the, the structures and conditions against Blacks that in, in 1831 uh, are based on the separatist ideology, but it's also happening in 1967 to both Blacks and gays and lesbians. And, and, and he's trying to say this is all nonsense. And so he's using the Nat Turner character to try to show that we could develop a healthier way of thinking that is more integrationist in nature. Yes, um, that argument uh, that was made when the novel came out by the 10 black writers, at least some of them who pointed to the homosexuality is 
some, you know, as a way of sort of demeaning Nat Turner, boy, that argument doesn't look so good now. That's right. And you have so many other black writers, Jay Saunders writing, Ralph Ellison, um, who are and James Baldwin, who are making the case for the gay community. Right. Richard Wright does this even in one of I think it's the long way home where he, he shows the problem of treating gay people in this really horrible way. And this is why I think all these black integrationist writers were supportive of Styron in his novel. The biographical novel, like the historical novel, you know, is very much, as you're showing, I think, uh, is going to uh, bring with it the sense of our own times. Uh, so one of the things the biographical novel does, I think the historical novel does too, is it, it is a reinterpretation of the past. Bio biographies can do this as well. Uh, but uh, a novelist has such freedom uh, to work with what is there, with what is the record, and, and, and to go beyond it. And I think that's what disturbs some people. You know, they'll read, uh, they'll watch a docudrama or they'll read a biographical novel or they'll read a historical novel. And if they're not well-versed in the period, they might say, well, I, this makes me uneasy. This troubles me because I don't know what's true and what isn't. What would you say to them? You got to start off by realizing it's fiction. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, that it's not history, it's not biography, it's fiction. And so the, um, and, and what I have noticed, you know, like you started the question by talking about the reinterpretation of the past, but most of my interactions with um, biographical novelists have focused less on reinterpreting the past than using the past. Mm. And so, um, you know, Susan Sellers did this one about Virginia Woolf and her sister, Vanessa Bell. And she said, look, my, my novel is more metaphor than fact. It's more my vision than a reality of the past. And so they're not so much trying to give us a reinterpretation of the past as they're using the past to help us understand certain kinds of human structures in the present. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. And so, so, and you know, one of the methods, you know, it was so interesting because it was a common method for so many of these authors who would say, look, I would live in the work for two, three years, just live in it. And then finally I put it away and I stopped reading about the person because now I wanted my vision to take over. And so um, I, am I giving you facts? And these writers say, no, I, I'm taking the story because it resonates. And now I'm fictionalizing fictionalizing it so that I can help make sense of life in the here and now and for the future. Um, and so they, they very consciously and strategically put the materials aside uh, so that their vision could take over. You know, one of the things that strikes me about your, your work uh, is your interviewing of these writers. Um, it's not a typical academic thing to do. Um, especially when you're studying a genre. I can't think of many scholars. Maybe there are now, and maybe I'm just showing my age, but certainly in, in, in my, my career, what I was doing as a biographer within academic life was, with very rare exceptions, not what scholars did. Uh, they wanted to confine themselves to the page, to the text. You know, um, let me tell you how that happened. Uh, when... When I, there was not much biofiction criticism when I first started. I mean, there's some, but it wasn't like it is now that it's just exploding everywhere. But um, the little criticism that I had read 
I was reading this stuff and I was saying, you know, this seems to me wrong. This doesn't seem like what these writers are trying to do. And so these these writers are saying, this is what the writer is doing. And I kept thinking, I don't, it doesn't strike me that this is what the writer is doing. So I had, when, when I got this idea of starting to interview the authors, part of it was to counter what all these scholars were saying. And lo and behold, most of the scholars would just say, hey, look, the, what they're saying I'm doing is not at all what I'm doing. And in fact, um, David Ebershaw, who did the one about the Danish girl, he was so frustrated. Um, he, and I don't think this came out in the interview. This was more what he was telling me privately. Um, but he said, you know, a lot of these writers are, uh, a lot of these scholars and historians are really criticizing me for doing things that I didn't even want to do. Like, they, they, you know, he says, I wasn't trying to do that. So for instance, Einar Vayner, the real person, was married to uh, a Danish woman. And, but David made the wife an American woman. And they were criticizing him because he got all the facts wrong. Well, he says, I didn't get the facts wrong. I know what the facts were. I just changed this because I was trying to do something totally different. Um, and so people make it seem like they were ignorant of the history or um, that they didn't understand the period. And most of the time, these people knew exactly what they were doing. They just did it for a reason, for a purpose. And, and getting the writers on record really helped me clarify that some of the critiques of biofiction were misguided and misinformed. Yeah, I think it makes the writing come alive when you do that kind of interviewing. Your experience reminds me of my own start as a biographer when I was, uh, I had a contract to write a, basically an academic work about Marilyn Monroe to write a biographical essay and then to write about, you know, the other literature about her. And as I began to do that, I spent a summer reading the, the uh, early books on Marilyn Monroe. And I kept thinking, there's something wrong here. There's, there's, they don't seem to understand. My background was in acting. They don't seem to understand uh, why she does certain things, and it has to do with her conception of acting. Uh, and that's when I began to contact people who worked with her. Uh, and it, it just sort of revolutionized things and, and, and I think has had a big impact in the way Monroe uh, biography is treated now. Uh, very different from just the sort of passive notion of her as a victim. Uh, but that's part of what I'm getting at is what, what I find remarkable and I think uh, really significant about your work on the biographical novel is dealing with those who create the work. And it's humbling too, because, you know, I've had to change my views quite a bit because I came in to those interviews sometimes with really faulty frameworks, which irritated a number of the the authors, and um, I think that one of the one of the things that has been really useful for me is to learn how to uh, acknowledge that I'm making errors mm. and listen to the authors so that I can get a better grasp. And I think sometimes scholars, you know, locked in our little offices, um, doing all of our thinking, can sometimes get wrapped up in our own notions and fail to see what these other people, that they have a voice in this. I mean, they're the writers. They're the ones who came up with the work. And I think we, sh we should be listening to them uh, and help, you know, it helps modify our, our own interpretations. So are you ever going to go back to Saunders Reading? Um, 
do you know from what i understand i still have to wait for about five or six people to die uh, before that book can be published because some of the stuff that is in there is really pertinent to uh really major players in the field today yeah. uh, and if any of this got out it could be um really quite scandalous and so i have to um i have I, I, I don't foresee myself going back to it. He somebody needs to write that biography. He's such an extraordinary man. Yes. Um, yeah. It reminds me of, of uh, Agnes DeMille, who waited decades and decades to write a biography of Martha Graham. Mm. And I, I was interviewing DeMille for one of my biographies. Uh, and she, she, she said, you know, I had to wait till Martha Graham died. There was just, you know, she knew Martha Graham very well, but she wouldn't have dared to publish the book, but you know, while while Graham was alive, right? Yeah. So who knows? You may come back to this material uh, at some point. Uh, I I'm sure you won't forsake the biographical novel, but uh, given my own interest in this, I hope someday you do attempt a biography. Yeah, that would be fun. That would be fun. Yeah. So what have I left out here, Michael? Is there anything else you you want us to know about the biographical novel, or something I should have asked you? You know, it's really taking off, uh, you know, the study of it. What, you know, you ask if I'm going to come back to the Jason Redding material. Yeah. And when I um, when I first started working on this, I had, um, a scholar by the name of Julia Novak brought me to London to be a part of a roundtable forum. And the scholar Lucia Boldrini was a part of this event. And afterwards, we went out. It was on Brexit night, the very night that Brexit happened. We we're out at a at a pub afterwards, and I said something to the effect, you know, like there's probably three, four, five more years of work ahead of us. And Lucia turned to me and said, uh, three or four or five years. She said there are decades of work ahead of us. <laughs> and I, how did I miss that? But she totally nailed it. I mean, she she saw something that I didn't quite see at that time. Um, but now that I've been working on it for almost 10 years, um, I don't see any end of it. Like I, the questions I have, the things I want to do, um, it's going to take me decades. I think I can't imagine turning to anything else right now because, uh, all the projects I have are going to take me literally years to do. And I'm working on the new project is on, um, uh, German biofiction. I just finished my Irish uh, biofiction project, which will be coming out in December. December. Uh, but now I've been working for the last year on the German biofiction project, which has been super exciting. Well, I look forward to that. And it certainly leaves our listeners with things to anticipate and to look for. And so they should stay tuned. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Hey, thank you so much, Kyle. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime. Sounds great. Good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.